Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is our Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast number five of the 2022 hurricane season. Coming up on today's episode is Dr. Ben Kurtman, a professor and research scientist at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine, Atmosphere, and Earth Science. That's the first time I've said that new name. They just added Earth Science in the name. So we're not calling it Rasmus anymore, I guess. Just Rosenstiel. For now. So Ben teaches graduate courses in the general circulation of the atmosphere at Rosenstiel, classes on El Nino La Nina and the ramifications of that, and climate prediction and predictability. He heads up a large-scale project called SubX that's designed to predict big weather events three and four weeks in the future, and other projects to try and predict much further out than that. And we'll talk about artificial intelligence, in other words, machine learning, and how that might help and change how we forecast the weather at long time frames in the future, plus lots of other interesting stuff. My conversation with Dr. Ben Kurtman is coming up in just a moment. I'm recording this on Monday, August 1st, 2022. Can you believe it's actually August already? And here we go with hurricane season. Well, as of today... The tropical Atlantic continues to be covered with dry and dusty weather, so the July pause in tropical activity will continue into August, which is kind of nice. This isn't wildly weird or in anything like that. It, uh, it will get weird if it continues past the middle of the month. By then, we'll start thinking that something really different is going on. But on average, the third named storm comes along on August 3rd. It's only August 1st, so... This is not uh, something strange, although it is fair to note that the Atlantic storms this far have been uh, pretty lame. On average, though, most of the vast majority of tropical activity comes after the middle of August, and generally we define the active part of the hurricane season as being August 20th to October 20th. There certainly have been some exceptions to that. Hurricane Charlie, which hit just north of Fort Myers in Punta Gorda on Florida's southwest coast on August 13th, 2004. Many of us remember that. That uh, comes to mind. So that was a little before that uh, August 20th to October 20th window. But uh, it's still not that far out. and Nothing appears in the offing this week. So... We'll just see what happens as we get toward the middle of the month and see if the things that normally come into play, which make the tropics more conducive to activity, actually come into play this year. The thing that is unusual this year is the amount of activity that's been developing in the eastern Pacific off Mexico. Six hurricanes have developed, and fortunately, they've moved out to sea, although the leftovers from the latest one, Hurricane Frank, might pump some tropical moisture into the San Francisco Bay Area and Northern California. And that'll be something a little different, although I used to forecast the weather in San Francisco, and occasionally we did get tropical moisture 
up that far north, but certainly no hurricanes or tropical storms. There's also a tropical storm Georgette out there. It's very strange to have all this activity in the Pacific, the Eastern Pacific, in a La Nina year. I talked to Ben Kurtman about that last week because he's kind of a La Nina, El Nino specialist. And uh, but at that point, there had only been five hurricanes that had developed. So um, we'll hear what Ben had to say here in just a moment. So let's take a break and I'll be back with my conversation with Professor Ben Kurtman from the University of Miami in just a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Ben. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So you're best known, I think, as an atmosphere and ocean guy, how they interact and so forth. So how did you get interested in that in the first place? As I think back, I think we used to think of both the ocean and the atmosphere as two separate systems back in the day. Yeah, actually, uh, I got interested in this because I grew up in uh, Southern California and uh, Every time there was an El Nino, uh, my parents' house uh, had a basement, very rare where I grew up, uh, but it was below the water table. And so when there was an El Nino, the basement would flood. And uh, when the basement flooded, somebody had to uh, pump out the basement. And it was a, a mechanical pump, and so you had to babysit it. So what are you, what's your teenage son for other than to babysit the pump for you, right? You have to get up in the middle of the night every half hour, go to sleep for another half hour or so. When there was a big El Nino, I was the pump center. And so it just got me really interested in this quote, where did this El Nino thing come from? Where, what is it? And so I got interested in that problem uh, in high school. And uh, when I went to college, uh, my interest peaked and on to graduate school. Yeah, and so, so I was what, what was your PhD subject and where did that lead you? So uh, my PhD was in um, uh, ocean and atmosphere science, but I originally started in applied math. And so uh, it was, Real, I was really interested in, you know, bringing a mathematical perspective to the problems of how the ocean and the atmosphere talk to each other. And so that's what I worked on in my thesis, and that's what I've been working on for the last 30 years. And, and where'd you go to school, and how'd you end up in Miami? Ah, uh, so I went to school at the University of Maryland. Um, they had some, uh, they had a real good department, and uh, uh, someone that was really getting interested and excited about these coupled ocean atmosphere kind of problems, uh, this guy named Shukla. And so uh, I worked with him and uh, then I uh, stayed in the DC area and uh, was a faculty at George Mason. And um, someone at Miami uh, came calling and uh, it was a really an excellent opportunity. It's a great program at the University of Miami, great students. And so I was excited to join the faculty there. Yeah, so there are a lot of things to talk to you about, but let's start with the Enso, or what everybody uh, normally knows as El Nino and, and La Nina, the yeah. warming or cooling of the tropical Pacific along the equator, basically kind of south of right. Hawaii. feels like we know a lot more about 
El Nino, La Nina now than we did, say, 20 years ago. But can we start at the basics? Does the atmosphere, in other words, the wind, cause El Nino or La Nina, or do the ocean temperatures cause the wind, or is that a chicken and egg question? It's a chicken and the egg question. It's a, it's a, it's a coupled phenomenon. The two, the two systems talk to each other. They work together to produce an El Nino. The simplest explanation is to think about it this way. Suppose the ocean surface temperatures get a little bit warmer. What that tends to do is tends to weaken the winds along the equator. When those winds weaken, the ocean temperature gets warmer. When the ocean temperature gets warmer, that makes the winds weaken more. The winds weakening more makes the ocean temperature warmer. So it's this coupled feedback between the two. Weaker winds, warmer temperatures, warmer temperatures, weaker winds. So it's a sort of a circular argument, but that's the nature of coupled processes. And that's, that's why we get El Nino. And then so, the winds get, and the water gets warmer because the winds don't churn up the water so much. So if you have strong winds, you get more you know, there's exactly. a colloquial term, churning of the water, right? Or exactly. overturning of the water. Uh, and That's so right. The weaker winds mean warmer water. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for filling that in. Well, you know, your intuition about the ocean is probably right. The, uh, the surface is warmer and it gets colder as you go with depth. Mm -hmm. If the winds are really strong, it mixes up that cold water. If the winds weaken, it's no longer mixing up that cold water to the surface. And that's how there's the two processes talk to each other. So just uh, just to try and be clear for somebody that, that really doesn't study this and be sure that I uh, interpret this right. So the simple version is that when the Pacific trade winds, the winds that are blowing from our part of the world over toward Asia, when they're strong, it kind of blows the warm water to the other side of the Pacific, and that allows the cold water on our side to come to the surface closer to South America, and the surface of the Atlantic gets cool to up well, so to speak. But when the right. so, but then the cold water on our side, and, and there's warm water on the other side. So that's a La Nina. That's kind of sort of like we have right now. But if the trade winds are weak, and then, like you said, that warms the water on our side of the Atlantic. Uh, our side of the Pacific, and that's the El Nino thing. Right. So the La Nina that we're experiencing right now, where there's kind of a weak La Nina, mm -hmm. meaning there's cool water, but not mm -hmm. super cold water uh, compared right. to long-term temperature averages. Why are some La Ninas or El Ninos weaker or stronger? Uh, that's a it's a great question, and I'll I'll tell you, Brian, we don't really know exactly what determines the strength of El Ninos and La Ninas, and part of the reason we don't really have a great explanation is these coupled processes are really complicated, and uh, other things happen that can affect this the how the ocean and the atmosphere talk to each other things that can come in from the extra tropics big cold surges into the tropics for example or how the monsoon the indian summer monsoon oscillates up and down so we don't actually have a very good explanation of what determines the amplitude of, of a cold event a la nina or a warm event el nino the debate really rests on at the mo at this moment in time really rests on two things there's stuff going on below the surface of the ocean. And so one hypothesis is it's the magnitude, the strength of that stuff that's going on below the surface of the ocean. And there are others that argue that, no, no, it's a higher frequency. It's uh, 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 what we call the Madden-Julian oscillation or a variability on faster timescales 
that's kicking the system so that it gets bigger or smaller in certain ways. So we don't actually know. Uh, that's an area of very active research. And essentially, the, the atmosphere doesn't uh, behave in lockstep with the ocean, right? So the atmosphere is kind of doing its thing to some degree, and that mm -hmm. affects the ocean. So you can't, I guess, uh, rely on the ocean to just do one, have one cycle, because the atmosphere is always interacting with it. Right. And so there's, uh, it's, that's a perfect explanation. You got it, you got it dead on. The, there's part of the atmosphere that we say is coupled. It's this tight coupling between the ocean and the atmosphere. There's a lot of stuff going on in the atmosphere that's not coupled, that's uncoupled variability. How is that knocking the system around? How is it banging it around and making it do different things? That's, that's the really hard part. We don't fully understand that. We have some ideas, but we don't fully understand that. So is this year's La Nina, uh, looking in where the cooler water is there in the Pacific, is it, is it different somehow, like more south of the equator than normal or something? Because we've had so many Pacific storms, and we've had five hurricanes in the eastern Pacific this year so far, and normally in a La Nina year, you don't get a whole lot of Pacific tropical, eastern Pacific tropical activity because the water tends to be cooler than normal, right? But when I look at the distribution of where the water is warm and the water is cool, it looks like there is this warm pool off of Mexico where these storms seem to be forming, and the cold water seems to be, to my eye, um, farther south. What's your analysis? Yeah, the, yeah the, cold, the cold water is further south. I mean, every, every La Nina is different. Uh, certainly this one, this one is um, uh, a, a, quite a bit different. And, I think you're seeing a lot of lot of competing things. So one, yes, the water has shifted perhaps a little bit further south than we normally have. It's giving an opportunity for more warmer water to develop further north. You tend to get some north-south contrast, or if it's cold at the equator, it gets a little warmer to the north. You see things like that happen. So we're seeing some of that contrast develop, but also there's the component of uh, a changing climate going on at the same time. The whole climate system seems to be warming up, and that so it's it's sort of uh, complicating uh, all of these processes all at the same time. So, you know, one could ask, are we seeing some signatures of climate change and some of or climate warming and, and some of these uh, changes in the hurricane statistics? Is it directly connected to La Nina? So there's some issues there that need to be resolved. Yeah. So I was actually going to ask you about that right now. Is, they, uh, is it fair to say that in the warmer world, we can't necessarily look at past El Ninos and La Ninas and, and the way the, the climate and ocean systems interacted and say, okay, it's going to act like that again because uh, we essentially we have a huge forcing variable here in, in the warming atmosphere and warming oceans. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's fair. It actually comes down to a really simple point and tells you that we really have a lot of work to do still in terms of understanding things. We actually don't know what El Nino will look like at 2100. We use our models to try to estimate that, but our models are giving very different answers. And that's because each model has different processes that it thinks are most important in terms of El Nino. So there might be a whole suite of processes. Each model is different. It's giving El Ninos for different reasons. And so we don't actually have a clear picture of what El Nino is going to look like at the end of this century uh, when the climate is significantly warmer. That's, a, again, an, an area of active research and really just shows you that, you know, 
we understand climate change on really large scales, continental scales, global scales, but when you start getting down to regional phenomenon and the natural variability, we have a long way to go. There's a lot we need to learn. Isn't part of that that, that the dramatic aspect of climate change that we see is in the Arctic, and it's more subtle in the tropics, although you do then affect the temperature contrast between the Arctic and the tropics. Uh, and so since the tropical differences are somewhat more subtle and maybe that, that temperature difference really affects the atmosphere more than it affects the tropical ocean, you have a lot of different kinds of interactions going on there that uh, yeah exactly we so uh, you know uh, uh we have these steep contrasts between the north and the south like you mentioned the warming tends to be amplified in the arctic that's re reducing the pole to equator temperature gradient mm -hmm. that's affecting the strength of the trade winds at the equator that you mentioned mm -hmm. and so you know there's one possibility that those trade winds would weaken and we sort of enter in sort of a permanent kind of el nino state uh, where maybe there isn't big oscillations anymore. And others argue that, well, in this sort of quasi-permanent El Nino state, you get bigger oscillations. And our models give us all kinds of different answers, in part due to the change to from how the temperature contrast between the equator and the tropics is actually, uh, the I'm sorry, the equator and the extratropics is actually getting weaker. Mm -hmm. uh, that difference, that temperature contrast is different. And that, that temperature contrast drives so much phenomenon uh, weather is intimately connected to that uh, contrast between the equator being warm and the poles being cold. If you warm up the poles, you're going to change the distribution of weather, too. So yeah, it's a, and the, it's a the, tricky problem. The nature of the jet stream, as a matter of fact, there are a lot of people that think that this extremely wavy jet stream is giving us this extreme weather heat way up into Canada and uh, very heavy rains and, and, and systems that don't move very much and all that is... Uh, related to this temperature contrast change that we've seen. That's right. And so we have a, we have a fundamental, uh, clear understanding of what's happening to that north-south temperature contrast, where, where we start to break down and not do as well, or we have a lot of work to do, is what are the implications? How does that impact hurricanes? How does that impact wet day-to-day -day weather? How does that impact El Nino? That's the part that uh, really uh, remains open science questions. What does it do to the natural variability? How does it change extremes that we're seeing? So uh, that's, the that's where the challenging science is, and that's what's exciting. Yeah, there was a time not long ago, I think, that, that the consensus was that uh, in a warmer world, we'd see fewer hurricanes but stronger hurricanes, and that was really because the climate models were indicating a, a uh, more frequent El Nino. Uh, right. But... Uh, my sense is that, as you say, there's been some divergence in the, the research about this, and, and there are some people that think, no, actually, we'll actually not have more frequent El Ninos necessarily, or the climate state will uh, still support plenty of hurricanes. Uh, maybe there won't be this, this lowering of the numbers because, we should say, because El Ninos when you have warm water in the Pacific, the air rises in the Pacific, and it flows across the Atlantic and creates a less um, hospitable environment in the Atlantic for storms to develop. So the idea was fewer storms would develop. But uh, maybe that's not as clear in, if I understand the current research. Yeah, that may not be as clear. We just, we just don't know. Certainly the, the uh, preponderance of evidence right now, as you mentioned, is that... Um, we're going to see there. 
we're going to see more uh, intense storms, cat more intense category three, four, and five. Whether there's going to be a total reduction in the number of storms, I think that's an open that remains an open uh, an open question. But I think the the preponderance of evidence, I would say, likelihood, but not the. It's not. It's not like. It's not nearly as confident our we are as the Arctic warming. Let's say, but there is increased likelihood of more Category three, four, and five storms. There's uh, increased water vapor in the atmosphere as the atmosphere warms. Uh, so that su seems to suggest that uh, these storms might produce more rainfall than they have in the past. Um, and there's some evidence that you actually mentioned that the forward speed of these storms has decreased also as a, as a result of climate change. But all of those uh, hurricane effects, um, they have, we have less confidence in those statements, uh, in part because this, the, you know, how climate change affects the natural variability is really tricky still. And yeah. uh, we have a lot of research to do. And let's take a quick break. I'll be back with Dr. Ben Kurtman in just a moment. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, you know, you talked about your experience in Southern California and and everybody that lives there is very familiar with strong El Nino years and the rain yes. and, and uh, so forth. So uh, we know that El Nino and La Nina and what the state of the Pacific is affects the global circulation. It has effects not just in California, but has effects in Florida and across the south and in the north, everywhere, right? So, so having that big pool of cold water or warm water there just puts energy in a different way into the global circulation. So you end up with different patterns on average. Is that fair? Yeah, actually, I like the way I like the way you put it. You have this big blob of warm water, or this big blob of cold water in the tropical Pacific, and it disrupts disrupts where the weather patterns go. So it's sort of moving energy from one place to another. That's a really clean way to, I think that's a very simple but accurate way to think about it. I think that's exactly right. One of the biggest, most robust signals associated with uh, El Nino is wintertime rainfall over Florida, as a matter of fact. So when even more so than California. So uh, when we have an El Nino, we expect uh, more winter rainfall uh, over Florida. And when we have a La Nina, we expect less winter winter season rainfall over Florida. And that's perhaps one of the most robust uh, relationships associated with El Nino and La Nina outside the tropics. So some of your work, and maybe a lot of your work, I don't know percentage-wise, but is is talking about seasonal predictions and yeah. you know, how they relate to El Nino and La Nina, how the winter is going to turn out. Uh, uh, does that really come down to forecasting El Nino or La Nina and how it's going to be present? Uh, or is it something, or are there many more parts to it, and that's just one component? That's one component, but it is the big dog. I, you know, to be fair, it is the, it is the big dog. However, uh, when you start talking about uh, uh, more regionalized aspects, you know, what's going to happen for rainfall this coming uh, winter season in, in Florida, 
or or in California, whatever, you, you do have to start to consider the other important processes. So in the West, snow cover uh, is intimately linked to how much, you know, their climate variability. If you have reduced snow cover, then uh, land heats up and you, you get different kind of responses. Uh, so what happens in land surface interactions becomes an important component of that seasonal prediction problem. So seasonal prediction, the, the work that we do, it taps into the El Nino-La Nina phenomenon, but it's holistic. We're trying to uh, predict the entire state of the climate system at any moment in time going forward up, say, out to a year or something like that. So we include all the processes. Sea ice is important in the Arctic. Um, the land surface processes is important. This uh, phenomenon that occurs on higher frequency timescales, the Manjulian oscillation, that also interacts constructively and can destructively interfere with the signal associated with El Nino. So we need to grapple with that also. There's yeah, a so lot that, of just to be sure we're clear on that, that's this kind of yeah, pulse sure. that goes around the tropics every uh, month or two that can enhance or suppress uh, tropical activity. And it's just a, a part of the atmospheric system, one of the things that, that makes forecasting uh, more difficult, one of the elements of forecasting. Yeah, and so not only does, yeah, it, it does. And so not only does um, El Nino and La Nina affect hurricanes, but also this Manjulian oscillation. So there, are, so it can it can pass through in the Atlantic and it's what's called active phase. It might give you a, a burst of two or three weeks uh, where the hurricane activity really increases or it might go, come through in its passive phase and suppress hurricane activity during the hurricane season for every two weeks. And so th that interaction between this higher frequency and the lower frequency El Nino, getting our hands around that is, is, is uh, uh, tricky stuff. Uh, there are times when our models do a really good job and our we have a lot of confidence in our forecasts, and there are times when our forecasts fail. So how far in advance can you make general predictions about the nature of a certain season, a hurricane season or a winter season or uh, any other time of year? Is it six months? Is it a year? Is there a, is there a you know, a horizon that you can't see past? Uh, yeah, there, there are all, so, uh, just like I, you know, I, I <laughs> uh, the story I tell is I get, I get phone calls to this day. Someone's going to call me, uh, and they're going to say, well, I'm getting married in October, October 15th. Is it going to rain? I'll get a phone call like that. And I'll tell them, no, I can't, I can't tell you if it's going to rain October 15th, but I could tell you if, generally if October is more rainy. Uh, so I can tell you the chances of a wet October or something like that. But only the 15th, I can't tell you if it's going to rain the 15th. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like that. It's it's uh, it, to say how far out we can predict into the future. We have to make an assessment of what are we predicting. So if I'm predicting the monthly mean or the average over the month of October uh, for rainfall over the U.S., we think we can predict somewhere around nine to 12 months in advance. Mm -hmm. If I'm if I'm predicting the the uh, two-week average rainfall, then I, I can't quite do it as much in advance. If I'm going to predict the daily rainfall uh, for October 15th, then the best I can probably do is October 2nd or 3rd. So, uh, you know, just a few days lead time, two weeks or something like that. So it depends what we're predicting, uh, what kind of phenomenon we're taking. So when we talk about seasonal prediction of hurricanes, what we're talking about is, can I tell you that this hurricane season is going to be more active? Or less active uh, might be able to say you know the chances are increased for more landfall hurricanes but that's a little 
a little fishy. We're not sure about that yet, but that's the kind of things that we talk about seasonal prediction. And so if I was thinking about hurricane season, I would say, okay, guys, if I can make a forecast in something like March, April, May for the coming hurricane season about whether it's going to be above normal or below normal, that's a pretty good forecast. Mm -hmm. And you have this big project you've been working on called SubX, right? That's yes. a bit sub-seasonal within a given season. And is that a three to four week forecast? Is that right? Do I have that right? That's right. So this, the SubX problem is really uh, historic. This is a, this is a, a fundamental change in, in the climate prediction community uh, in that we thought this time scale, you know, what's going to happen two, three weeks, four weeks from today, <clears throat> we thought that was uh, going to be impossible forever. But we've had some breakthroughs and we think we can actually make some progress. So this SubX project uh, that we're running, you can think about it as, uh, you know, uh, this hurricane season, we're suggesting it's going to be a more active hurricane season. That's the forecast. And that's largely based on La Nina. Mm -hmm. But as we go through the hurricane season, can we say two weeks out, look, we're about to enter a really active period, a really active hurricane period. That's what that SubX project is about. Can we capture the higher frequency phenomenon that sits on top of this lower frequency, slower moving El Nino, La Nina phenomenon and how that impacts our weather and climate? Uh, so that's really what the SubX project is driving at. And it leverages this uh, Madden-Julian oscillation, just like the seasonal problem leverages uh, El Nino, this Madden-Julian oscillation is a big part of the, what we leverage in this uh, higher frequency forecast. Yeah, I was just writing about this, actually, that that we're in a an enhanced phase of the Madden-Julian oscillation over the Atlantic. We saw this coming, right? But there is so much dust and, uh, and other factors, right? So it's a battle between uh, wind shear dust in the negative and an enhanced phase of Madden-Julian in the positive. And um, all the computer forecast models say that the dust and, and the rest of it is going to win. And this enhanced phase is going to move on. Uh, and interestingly, from a timing standpoint, we might get a suppressed phase going into August for at least you know some part of when we expect tropical activity to generally begin in August. So you have all this stuff going on kind of in different levels, and I guess what you're trying to do is see what lines up, right? Or what lines exactly. up. Yeah. What constructively, what constructively interferes, and you're identifying all, a lot of the destructive interference, right? The, right. the dust loading is destructively interfering with the Manjulian oscillation signal and the La Nina signal. And this is the, this is the profound challenge that we have. And so, you know, a couple of months ago, we were, you know, announcing this active hurricane season. Uh, and, you know, as of now, we haven't seen that big activity. And so, you know, we have to be able to explain why we have to be able to forecast that, you know, this, you know, possibility that even though some of the big forcing signals indicate increased activity, we could end up with a less than normal hurricane season because of the dust loading and the timing of the Madden-Julian oscillation. These are the things we have to be able to predict because otherwise people are going to lose confidence in our forecasts. And so we we really need to work hard to make sure we can capture this phenomenon. In weather world, I hear you know people throwing around 2013. So 2013 was a year when the seasonal predictions were kind of uniformly bad, right? It, it just yes. didn't it didn't happen, and it wasn't obvious why it wasn't happening. 
Right. I mean, it's too early to, to commit to that by any means. It's not even August yet, um, uh, as we're recording this here. So, but but you know, as somebody who looks ahead and, and does want to do these seasonal forecasts, I mean, does this situation make you a little nervous here? Uh, I think that I think there's a real uh, concern. I, my concern is the dust is going to clear out, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, the uh, La Nina signal is going to dominate. You know, start to really kick in mm -hmm. uh, probably late August, early September, maybe even you know pushing into late September. And so I think we're going to see a flourish, a blooming of the hurricane season, perhaps late in the hurricane season, you know, late September, something like that, uh, and. Uh, my concern is that people will be a little bit complacent because it's a slow ramp up. And so, okay, maybe it'll be a week year, but I wouldn't be surprised if late in the season, we see a, a blooming of hurricane activity. We've certainly seen it go both ways, right? We've seen it where suddenly the season stopped like a super busy season. Was it 2004? That was just crazy. Was it, is that the one I think? And then it, I think so. I think it, it shut off. Well, last year, um, last year's a good example. Yeah. Last year we, we got to October and that was essentially early October and that was it. And it was bang, bang, bang at a record rate uh, before that. But then we've seen it the other way too, where it's started late and then gone full force or there's been a big gap where there's nothing that's happened. And then it's all come back. Even in 2005, it wasn't like it was steady through the season. That was the Katrina, Rita, Wilma year it wasn't steady there were these gaps where we actually thought maybe there would be a break and then once it started in late august then it was steady then it was right. crazy uh, for the next two months right so that happened so uh i'm i'm i, I hope it, I, <laughs> it's kind of funny because you uh you do these forecasts and you're, you you know, there's a part of you you know i have a house in florida so i hope i'm wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> at times <laughs> so it's kind of a weird uh thing but uh, uh yeah Let's take a quick pause. We'll be right back on the Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast in just a moment. So do I have it, I have it right that, that basically what you're trying to do is determine um, when the atmosphere and ocean system is conducive to storm hurricane development or or in winter forecasts some other aspect extra cold extra warm extra wet something like that exactly. so you're trying to find you know this these set of factors that make it conducive to a certain outcome and uh, identify them right does that is that that's right that's exactly right and and the uh, so instead of in in the modeling world i use these complex uh, computer models that we think capture uh, uh, how the ocean and the atmosphere talk to each other, all the physical phenomenon, uh, holistically, all of the things. So I don't have to have any preconceived notions about what's important at this moment in time and what isn't. The hard part there is uh, developing these models, uh, making sure these models start with a good estimate of what the state of the climate system looks like so they can march forward in time. These models are very complex and uh, precisely how do you use them is very tricky. So the example in the hurricane community is, right, you have this plume of uh, spaghetti diagrams, people sometimes call them, these plume of hurricane forecasts. 
bunch of different models. They're the same problem in the seasonal prediction community. We have challenges initializing these models. We have different models that give different forecasts. How do we combine them? So the way I tell people what I do is I try to glean the best possible guidance on what the climate system will look like in the future, given multiple flawed tools. All right. Well, all right, that's fair. Uh, is there uh, an artificial intelligence component to this? I mean, it seems like every problem we try and solve these days, we solve it with some kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, something like that. Yeah. So we're, we're starting to bring that uh, that machine learning stuff to bear on the seasonal forecast problem, but it's in its infancy. It's a it's turning the problem uh, on its head in a in a really nice way. So uh, when we, when you and I were talking about things, we were talking about specific phenomena. We were talking about how El Nino and La Nina affect things, how the Madden-Julian oscillation affects things, how dust affects things. The machine learning approach, the data science approach, is uh, agnostic in terms of phenomena. It says, just give me all the raw data and let, let's let the machine figure out what's important. So it's a really different, uh, uh, different approach. Uh, it's it's also tricky too because you can make lots of mistakes when you think about how you what data you decide to give to the machine how you train how the machine trains on that data what what kind of implicit rules are you incorporating so it's still tricky business but it's a different approach it's saying let's let the data drive the answer instead of how I think I understand the climate system so it's a different approach and uh, I think the com combination of the two is what we're looking for to give the best possible forecast. Yeah, on YouTube, you can see people that have uh, are showing examples of amazing things that uh, some kind of uh, machine is making in terms of the art it makes or something like that. But if you stray and they try to force it to stray just outside of a certain set of parameters, it turns into something goofy, right? It, it, doesn't, That's right. it doesn't get outside of its lane. Its lane can be amazingly wide when you're thinking in those terms, but as soon as you start thinking over here, it it um, it comes up with some you know nonsensical kind right. of kind of approach, right? That's and the, the that's right. And the really the exactly and the so this machine learning is all sort of when you let the data drive everything, it's it it only learns on what's happened in the past. So it only knows what's happened in the past. It's not based on first principles. And so if you want to go into the future and you might be worried that the climate system is warming and we might be going into a state that's never been uh, observed in the past, then those machine learning models will start to go goofy, just like uh, the art you're talking about. So you're outside the range. And so figuring out how to blend this uh, notion of a, a changing climate with uh, this data-driven science is uh, something that we're, that is going to be a big challenge going forward. So I think that's a really interesting point because so much of what we talk about is based on normals, and so much of our understanding of of the science is has the caveat at the end. As a matter of fact, um, Dr. Phil Klotzbach and and Dr. Michael Bell, as you know, at Colorado State, mm -hmm. you know, where they pioneered, where Bill Gray pioneered hurricane forecasting, season seasonal forecasting back in the, the early '80s. Uh, they have in their report every month or two that they put it out, you know, assuming that the weather climate system uh, behaves like it did in the past. You know, and I've, right. I've talked to Phil um, about the question of 
is you know at what point is that not a good assumption what how do we how do how are we sure that that's still a valid assumption or to what degree it's a, a good assumption to me that's an important question and a difficult to answer question and uh, this you know the whole idea of, of making forecasts whether they're seasonal or or weather forecasts uh, these days so much of what we do is based on the past uh, yes, <laughs> that's a that's a big problem, and uh, when we uh, it's also um, at times an advantage that the climate is changing. So, uh, for example, over North America in the winter, we very we don't have really cold winters like we used to have. We right. tend to have relatively warm winters. That's because it's based on this past climate, and and so our 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 forecast models are sort of taking advantage of that changing climate because we include that process in the models and they're always giving us 10 to warmer winters. So we're getting good forecasts because the climate system is warming. Uh, but as you said, we're, we're coming close to the point where we're sort of entering into states that haven't been observed and our statistical relationships are non-stationary. They're not fixed. Mm -hmm. And so we can't rely on them as much. And so that's why there's going to have to be, this blending of our, our models that we think are based on our first principles of how we understand the physics of the system and the, the data of the past. And, and the, the really exciting science that's happening right now is to figure out how to bring these two things together to make a, a better forecast. And, that's yeah, what and to what on. degree the, the warming planet uh, affects the, 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 our traditional understanding of, of the systems. Not, not understanding maybe isn't the right word, but... but uh, affects the statistics based on on past relationships or past systems that we've seen or past phenomena yeah exactly and and there's lots of um, lots of ways to make breakthroughs here we have uh, you know some really uh, good modeling tools that we can separate the climate change component from what's you know uh, what's happening just internally and we can do lots of experiments but it's it's uh, it's hard work it's difficult science and and uh, 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 you know that's what we do at the university mm -hmm. I just try to really figure out how these things are interacting we can hypothesize and make statements yeah warmer atmosphere it's going to rain more stuff like that but exactly how much and where and when and that, that what does it matter for hurricanes does it matter for drought and floods and so it's it, the it, the devil really is in the details. Yeah. So this, which gets to the the whole nomenclature issue, we used to call it global warming, which is a very true statement. But that doesn't mean warmer everywhere, and and can mean wetter some places, colder some places. Uh, right. It means it means I what I what I like to say is that the weather we have today would not have been the weather that we would have had if we hadn't warmed the atmosphere. It's just, it's a different weather pattern because we put this extra energy into the, uh, the whole system. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, so the example, I actually have a student working on this problem at the moment. What she's working on is, uh, you know, uh, cold air outbreaks. So someone might say, well, climate's warming. Why do you worry about cold outbreaks? Well, even if you go into the future and you look at any 30-year period, if you just look at that 30-year period, there's going to be times when it's a lot colder than normal. And uh, society is going to have to respond to that. So colder outbreaks are always going to be a problem, uh, you know, uh, going into well into the future. And so there are these, uh, you know, uh, 
there is climate change. The system is warming, but that doesn't mean we're not going to have snowstorms. It doesn't mean we're not going to have colder outbreaks. It doesn't. It, it still means we're going to have droughts and floods and all kinds of stuff that we're going to have to deal with and hurricanes and things like that. So uh, you're right. The it's the global warming doesn't mean that the weather stops happening. It just means we're shifting how that weather is working. So the, the, the whole question of predictability has always been interesting to me in this changing uh, system, and to what degree it's changing is an open question, I guess. So how close do you think we are to some kind of predictability limit with just picking one small slice, like hurricane tracks in the next few days? If we look at the improvement you know, with, with all the general improvement in the models, and especially at days four and five in their our forecasts. If you look in the short term, there hasn't been that much dramatic uh, improvement over the last few years. It kind of goes up and down. It's hard to tell whether any one improved year is a trend or it's just uh, somewhat random. Where, where do you think we are in terms of predictability of these things, and and uh, uh, how would we know? How, how do we? How do we know, you know, when we're at some kind of predictability limit in a chaotic system that like, like the atmosphere? <laughs> so uh, you have just asked probably one of the most important and profound questions that we're struggling with today. So I can tell you what the lower bound of predictability is, and it's obvious. It's the extent to which we can predict it. So that's the lower bound. So we, so that's easy, right? Okay, Ben, that's a great answer. <laughs> right, great answer, really easy. But that, you don't care about that. What you really care about is what's the upper bound? What's the ultimate limit of predictability? We think we have a pretty good idea of what that is in, in terms of weather, day-to-day -day weather fluctuations, winter storms. We think that's about 14 days or so. However, there are regime phenomenon, blocking phenomenon, or things like that that shift weather patterns for a considerably longer time. And so there may be phenomenon that have even more predictability. And so uh, getting at that upper bound is really, really hard, in part because we have to use our models, which we've already said that are flawed, to estimate that upper bound. So it gets tricky. You know, do you believe the model 100%? Maybe not. So getting the upper bound is really tricky. And, and it also depends on what. What are we trying to predict? What are we predicting? So hurricane tracks, uh, the predictability of hurricane tracks is probably greater than predicting hurricane intensity, for example. We've made quite a bit of progress, I think, in predicting hurricane tracks. Ten intensity remains a struggle. But we think we can do better. If we had better data and better models, we think we can do better. So it suggests that the conventional wisdom is that we haven't hit the limit with either tracks or intensity, but we're quite a ways away with intensity. So, for example, I mean, Hurricane Ida comes to mind because it was just last year, and people in New Orleans were very surprised that there was a wobble, but what, what, what we assume was a wobble as opposed to some sort of larger scale atmospheric phenomenon, something to do with the inner dynamics of the, of the hurricane that made it just wobble in the direction of New Orleans a bit, which made the weather somewhat worse for the city of New Orleans than if it had continued on a straight path, which in South Florida, you know, a storm is heading toward Miami and it wobbles and worse weather occurs in Fort Lauderdale. You know, the, as a, these are very practical issues for people that 
living with these things, right? And so, um, you know, my sense in in looking at Ida and other storms that it, that we see make these, uh, I don't know, twenty mile, you know, we call them wobbles, is that that. Uh, I don't expect to be able to forecast that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I expect that we're always going to have some amount of, of slop that we have to put around the, the track and, and just admit that those phenomena we're, we're not going to be able to model and, and detect and know when they're going to happen. We, we can say it's probably going to happen, but when is it going to happen in the track and is it going to happen right as it's making landfall? feels like to me... Uh, a daunting proposition, and 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 I don't even yeah. you know, imagine being able to forecast that. No, I, I agree with that. There's two two points that I would I would want us to consider when we think about that. The the first is um, when you look at it as a a large scale weather climate guy like myself, the track of Hurricane Ida was quite good. Yeah, Several exactly. days out, right? It was a great forecast. But if you look at it as a as a hurricane expert or someone that's living in, in New Orleans, oh, God, this wobble really clobbered us, right? And so where I think the second point I want to make is that where I think we need to really push is what are the what is the probability of that wobble? Is it, it we can't actually say it's definitively going to wobble, but is there a 10 percent chance that it's going to do this 20 mile shift, a 30 percent chance, a 40 percent chance, really uh, quantitatively uh, robust probability es estimates will allow important decision makers uh, to be able to deploy resources to respond to the storm more carefully. So it's, we're not going to be able to say it's going to wobble, but can we say that there's a 10% chance, a 20% chance? So we, can we really refine those probabilities of these slight movements? That's where I think we need to be pushing. And it becomes very, very critical for planning because if a storm goes just north of the uh, entrance to Tampa Bay, the water gets pushed in the bay. If it goes just south of the entrance to Tampa Bay, the water gets pushed out of the bay, right? It's a tremendously different effect on, on the Tampa Bay area, just that slight difference in track, which we saw with Laura a couple of years ago when it just missed Calcasieu Pass going up to, to Lake Charles in Louisiana. It went just to the right, so the huge surge of water that that would have gone 30 miles inland didn't happen um, they got you know blasted by the wind but but if it had gone just to the left and and uh, it, it would have happened and they it really is uh, I think I think everybody understands that it is it is unforecastable in an absolute sense but it is forecastable in a an odds sense in an odd sense. And in fact, you know, the scenario that you just laid out for Tampa Bay, I've had some interactions over the years with uh, uh, the American Red Cross, for example. And what they really worry about is that storm where the wind drives Tampa Bay inland, basically. Mm -hmm. That's where they're really concerned that the, that the impacts would be catastrophic. Uh, and so that 10 mile, 20 mile wobble and what are the chances of it? That's going to make a big difference in the deployment of resources to uh, for recovery and resilience in response to that storm. So you're absolutely right. But uh, like you said, uh, uh, we have to do this in a probability perspective, an odds perspective. Otherwise, uh, we're not credible because there's odds that it won't happen. And we have to be honest about that. 
Yeah, in the last podcast, I was talking to Paul Delegato, who's the chief meteorologist at uh, Channel 13 in uh, in Tampa. And we were talking about, you know, I said, well, who, what do you talk about to people there? He said, well, we talk about the 1921 hurricane, and you know, which was the last Category 3 hurricane to put water into Tampa Bay. Uh, although in 1848, there were two, one really big one that, you know, moved in north of, uh, of Tampa Bay. And if it were to happen today, it would be a... A devastating type hurricane. So we know it can happen. It, yes. It really comes down, I guess, when you when you get down to it, as a practical matter, it comes down to a communications problem, right? It's that that well, if we can't absolutely forecast these very small deviations that make so much difference to how people live, then we've got to motivate people to understand the the odds uh, of yeah. something happening and take action based on that. Yeah, and I, and I agree. It is a, the communications part is a, is a big part of it, and it's fairly clear to me that that the public can understand uh, probabilities and odds. I mean, they understand gambling, they understand the stock market, they can understand these things. But we struggle to figure out how to uh, present forecasts in a way that people can digest the odds and make informed, uh, well-informed decisions. So that communication problem is something that the Hurricane Center, I'm sure you're well aware of this, is grappling with all the time. The, the, the cone that they make, you know, is, is a basically a probability assessment. And people have a lot of concerns about uh, just how that information is communicated and how people interpret it. For example, if they're outside the cone, they assume they're safe. It's still, a, you know, there's still a 33% chance of the storm hitting you if you're outside the cone. Well, so, that's just the center of the storm. Now that the cone has right. shrunk so much, the, the bad weather is always outside the cone. Now, right, right. You know, back when I started that, the, the bad weather was very often inside the cone, and it kind of <laughs> worked, right? That right. has been, you know, um, 30 years ago. So uh, on a different predictability question um, we haven't been making we have not been making public or the National Hurricane Center has not been making public seven day forecasts for uh, hurricane tracks because there are enough outliers that uh, you know I guess it could damage credibility and 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 uh, I think I'm very concerned as a really a communicator of what what happens when you tell somebody it's not going to happen and then you have to turn around and tell them it is going to happen Right. That's you wouldn't really want to avoid that because people latch on to the, oh, it's not going to happen. I don't have to pay attention anymore. So the Hurricane Center works very hard to try and, you know, as long as there are decent odds, it's going to happen that you, you know, keep it going. So trying to figure out how when you when you know you have these potential outliers, um, Hurricane Florence was a, an example uh, a few years ago where. The models were taking it up in the middle of the the ocean, and it kept coming toward the toward, toward the coast, and of course hit in South Carolina, and it was a a, a big uh, disruptive storm. Uh, so, what do you what do you think about that issue? Because it, isn't it something like a kind of a bell curve, and so you have these tails, right? You always have a tail on the curve, right? And mm -hmm. the question is how you minimize the tail, and then what do you do? How do you identify when? when you have the odds of something occurring outside of the the center of the curve of possibilities? Yeah, I, I think that's a really important question that, that you know, goes beyond the physical science, goes into the sociology and the communication issues. Uh, it, and is, 
uh, of critical importance to figure out to get that right. And, uh, you know, I don't know uh, uh, whether a false negative is worse than a false positive, right? Which is worse? Which risk is higher? So if you give a, if, if you make a forecast and it doesn't happen, are people going to ignore the next forecast? If you miss it, uh, uh, if you miss it and it happens, you know, people may lose lives and property and maybe a big impact. What are they going to think about the next time the storm, storm uh, forecast is made? So, you know, the impact of false positives and false negatives and how we deal with that and how we communicate that. And, you know, what's the obligation, uh, you know, of the Hurricane Center uh, to go out to longer leads? A lot of that, you know, for people that are willing to sniff around on the Internet, a lot of that forecast information is out there. You know, the uh, you go to various websites, uh, you can start to see forecasts that are going two weeks out or even longer. So uh, for someone that really wants to dig it up, and so, uh, you know, there's a part of me that thinks the Hurricane Center should be the, the honest broker of uh, all that information that's out there, really provide some uh, con contextual uh, uncertainty estimates of when you should start taking these things seriously, when you should worry about the tails of the distribution. But there's also part of me that these guys are busy and, and they really got to focus on the, you know, the immediate problem, the train that's coming in the, you know, into the tunnel. Uh, so yeah. figuring out all of this stuff, I think, is is stuff that needs to be done. But uh, I do think the Hurricane Center is in this great position. It's really well respected. Uh, it's the it really is the clearinghouse for the best hurricane information, of course. And so, uh, you know, going to longer leads, being that honest broker, I think, is a, an important role for the Hurricane Center. Yeah, I talk about this a lot, actually, the issue that we need in our society because we have so many fewer credible voices and the National Hurricane Center is, is one of the real credible voices, one of the few in our society. And, and uh, I'd like to see the National Weather Service actually have a bigger voice in our, in our society. That doesn't take anything away from private forecasters or, uh, sure. or, or communicators. But uh, you do need credibility underpinning. And as uh, communication systems get so much more distributed, and, and people don't connect as much with people anymore. They connect with websites and things like that. When important information needs to be communicated, people still want to uh, understand the credibility of the messenger. And I, I think that's really important. I think so, too. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of work going on trying to understand how uh, people uh, take in information, what, who they consider the honest broker. So, for example, the example I always give is uh, my neighbors during hurricane season, if they see me put up shutters, that's it. It's going to happen. Time to put up our shutters, right? Yeah, Max Mayfield or, says the same thing, yes. <laughs> okay, so your neighbor is your honest broker, but they don't really know if I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so we need to sort of uh, uh, you know, really help people identify who are the most important to honest brokers in providing the best information and uh uh, like you said, the Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center and, and just NOAA in general is really the organization that can take the lead in being that, being that honest broker. Yeah. All right, Ben, thanks so much. We'll be interested in uh, following uh, your research, and uh, it's, uh, you're right on the cutting edge, and it's uh, great to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Nice conversation. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. I'll be right back in just a moment.
And welcome back. Well, anybody that knows me knows that Florida State is my school. I have two degrees from there. And at the time I got my master's, FSU was the big meteorology school in the South. And it's still a great school with a great legacy. But I've taught at the University of Miami and I've spent time at the Rosenstiel School, which is a separate place from the main campus in a magnificent location on Biscayne Bay. For somebody who wants to study how the tropical oceans interact with the atmosphere in the real world, I can't imagine a better place than the Rosenstiel School at Miami. It'll be interesting to see how Ben's research matures going forward. As computers become more powerful and more innovative projects evolve, we'll challenge the intrinsic predictability of the atmospheric and oceanographic system, I'm absolutely sure. Be sure you subscribe to our Tracking the Tropics podcast. Our next one will be next week when we'll talk with our old friend and the new director of the National Weather Service, Ken Graham, will be here. Ken took over responsibilities for the nation's weather program after a successful run as director of the National Hurricane Center and the Weather Service office serving the New Orleans area. So I'm looking forward to visiting with Ken after the big transition, and that's coming up next week. A reminder, remember to download the Fox Weather app. First, you can get your local forecast without a bunch of annoying ads getting in the way all the time. And you can watch the live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or your iPad by just clicking in the upper right. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com or on the Roku channel, YouTube TV, Amazon Fire, and lots of other streaming platforms. So I'll see you there on the Fox Weather stream when the tropics are active. And follow me on Twitter at B Norcross and on Facebook and Instagram just Google Brian Norcross and you'll find me. Until next time, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well and stay informed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.